Thanks for checking out the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. To find out more about us, visit our website at iloveelevate.com. You can also stay up to date with what's going on by finding us on social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends. We hope you enjoy this message and it brings you closer to Jesus. I'm really excited about tonight. Like we get to dive into the word of God. What is he speaking to us? What is he speaking to you? Ask yourself, Lord, what what are you saying to me tonight? Thank you, worship team. Appreciate you guys. Y'all give the worship team a hand. If you're new here tonight, welcome. If you've only been here a couple times, welcome. If you are a veteran of Elevate, love you. Are you guys ready to jump in? All right, so there was this crazy happening way back when. The Macedonians under Alexander the Great were ruling Jerusalem. And they wanted to force the Jews to worship their idols and to cease all of their Jewish worships. So they tried to force this priest named Mattathias to slay a pig, what they considered an unclean animal, in the Holy of Holies. And Mattathias wasn't having any of that. And so not only did he resist... But whenever another priest was like, sure, I'll do it. Instead, Mattathias rises up against him, kills that priest, kills the Roman guard, or or the, excuse me, the Greek guard that's trying to make all this happen, and then heads for the hills, taking his five sons with him. And from there, he began a revolt against the Macedonians who were running Jerusalem. Mattathias, a year later, would die, but his sons would pick up the mantle, and his son named Judah, or Judas, would be the one to drive the Greeks out of Jerusalem forever. And they still have a party about this thing every year, and they call it Hanukkah. In a lot of ways, that Mattathias character and his sons were messianic characters. They were people that they felt that they were called by God in this holy revolt against their oppressors. And they set themselves up, what's called the the Hasmonean dynasty. And they functioned as both kings and priests at the same time, which hasn't happened since, I don't know, Melchizedek or maybe Moses functioning with that kind of duality of, of authority. I kind of take that idea, put that in your back pocket. And we're going to come back to that. We are wrapping up kind of a two-week portion. We were looking at chapters six through eight. Because chapter 9 is going to be a hinge for the book of Mark. Up until now, Jesus' ministry has been very public. He's been traveling towns to towns and sending out his disciples into the different towns. But beginning with chapter 9 in the Transfiguration, Jesus' ministry is going to become only private. He's not traveling around anymore. He's not doing any big miracles anymore. He is changing gears completely. And now he's turning his face towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, towards his death. And that happens in chapter 9. And so right up until chapter 9, we have this series of events, and we were unpacking it a little bit last week. And this series of events serves two purposes. One, it's supposed to show that Jesus is greater than Moses, he's greater than the old sacrifices, and he's greater than the old covenant. And two, that Jesus came to purify not human works. It's not about rituals, about doing different stuff. He came to purify the human heart, right? 
And this is a, this is a flip for them. And so if we were to lay this out in kind of an outline, this is one of what happens, chapters 6 through 8, is Jesus gives bread. Remember, he feeds the 5,000. How many baskets did they left, left over? 12, 12. And then he confronts the Pharisees, just roasts them. Then we have an example to see if someone is picking up what he's putting down. And that was a Syrophoenician woman. Remember her? And she comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is demon-possessed. And he says, why am I throwing, I'm not going to throw bread to the dogs. And she says, yeah, but even the crumbs, even your leftovers are more than enough for me and my daughter. Even your leftovers are more than enough. So she gets it. She gets that Jesus' godship, his sonship, that his grace surpasses the old covenant. It surpasses everything that she had known. That he has a 12 baskets full leftovers, even if she's not Jewish. Then we're going to start this pattern over again. Jesus is going to feed the 4,000. How many baskets of leftovers does he have now? Close. Seven. Close. So he's going to break bread again. Then he's going to confront the Pharisees again. And then it's going to follow with an example to see if someone is understanding what Jesus is teaching. Mark cycles this twice for some reason. Now, do we have the, the outline up there? Notice, so here's the cycle, one, two, three, one, two, three. You have these little kind of caveats that happen in between. You have the healing of the deaf man, and then you have the healing of the blind man. And those are so critical, crucial. And these are all leading up to a point where we'll talk about tonight. Jesus is going to prophesy his death, and then he's going to challenge his followers. So let's go to the, let's go to the word of God. Mark chapter 8, verse 36 is one verse, and I want you to put that in your other back pocket. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? What is, what is the gain? If you were to pursue and have every good thing, if you were Solomon, if you were, I don't know, name wealthy people. Sure. Who else? Definitely. Yes. Also a wealthy guy. If you had everything the world had to offer, but you still lose all of eternity... What was it ever worth? Remember that rope that we had at conference? Our lives were like this big, but the rope went on and on and on and on. Like, we stay so focused on this portion right here that we forget the rest of it. All right, hang on to that thought. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It made no sense. Mark, Chapter 8, Jesus is going to confront the Pharisees. Remember, he just did the bread, fed the 4,000. We're going to have to skim over that. And he's going to confront the Pharisees again. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. You have to understand how ridiculous that is. He just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves. He just fed 4,000 people. The whole point of it being a throwback to Exodus where God fed them with bread from heaven. And they're like, would you give us a sign from heaven? And he's like, duh, hello, just did it. Walking with you here. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. That's what it means. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. Peace out. He's so frustrated with the Pharisees. And so he's, he's still sighing deeply within himself. He's still like, Grrr. and then he turns to the disciples. Remember, they're in the boat, and he says, 
Verse 14, now the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven's like yeast, yeast, bread. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that, he, that they had no bread. They're like, Jesus brought up yeast. Obviously, he's annoyed that we only brought one loaf. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up then? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not? yet understand. And you have to understand, I'm asking for you guys to understand, and follow me on this. Jesus has got to be so frustrated. He talks about, beware the, the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And he's, he's talking about like this contagious idea that you have to do works to be saved. But the fact that they only brought one loaf is all they can get their minds around. They can't get past the fact they only brought one loaf of bread. And Jesus is like, calm down. Are you serious? You brought a loaf of bread. How much was I able to feed with just five loaves? How much was I able to feed with just seven? And you're concerned that we don't, with one is not enough for the 12 of you? Guys, you're missing it. I want you to catch this. He says, do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and don't hear? What? Jump back to our outline. Check this out. What miracle did he just do? He, hear, he healed the deaf man who couldn't hear. Check out the very next miracle that's going to happen. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, Oh, no, I'm sorry. Am I way ahead? No, no, no. Oh, where's my... Oh, I was... Uh, okay, so let me tell the story of the blind guy. Thought I had it in my notes. So they find this blind guy, and he calls out for Jesus, and they bring him to him, and he wants to see. So he takes him outside the city, and I love this. It says that he spit on his eyes, that's nasty, and put his hands on him. But you have to understand, in a blind guy's world, Jesus is doing something that he can experience. He can't watch Jesus do some magical wave in the air. He can't watch these miracles happen, but Jesus relates to him in his own level. He touches his eyes, puts his hands on him, and commands for him to see. And he opens his eyes. And you know what? It's the most mind-boggling thing. It says that he only sees partially. He looks around and he says, I see people, but they just, they're kind of like trees walking. And Jesus is like, hold on, let me do this again. And he does the whole thing again, and then finally he can see clearly. And I didn't understand. I was like, did the miracle not take? Was Jesus not strong enough? Like, what's going on here? How come he only gets half healed the first time? We have to understand. Jesus is trying to make a point here. He's trying to point out where the disciples are. You have ears, but you're not hearing. You have eyes, but you're not seeing. Think about how the disciples have struggled so much to understand who Jesus is. They're only partially seeing. They're only beginning to grasp vaguely 
who he is. Now let's keep going. Mark 8, 14. Jump forward to 27. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Are you ready? Here's our example. Bread, Pharisees, an example. Let's see how they're doing. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others said, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who did you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I want to unpack this for a second. What did Peter mean by, You are the Christ? That's right. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. What is Messiah in the Old Testament? So let's go back in time a little bit. Let's take a look. There's only, Messiah is only mentioned in the Old Testament two times. Both of them are in the book of Daniel, and both of them are in one story. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 through 11 through 26. Daniel is praying, and he's seeking the Lord. He's had these weird visions. And he's like, what does it mean? And God sends Gabriel in a vision to explain to him what's going on. And the explanation is crazy cryptic. Here's Daniel talking. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O Daniel, I have come out to give you insight and understanding. It's interesting. Jesus is like, don't you perceive? Don't you understand? just find that interesting. We have a redundancy of the same language. So Daniel is going to receive understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word ran out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression and put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision of prophet and to anoint the most holy place. That sounds sort of like crazy, right? Basically, Gabriel is saying there's a timeline on sin, and it's 70 weeks. Each of the days represent years. And at the end of these 70 weeks, sin will be dealt with, and there will be an everlasting righteousness. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, all right, so, when do we start counting these 70 weeks of days? 70 times 7, it's a number of years. When do we start counting? We start counting at as soon as a decree goes out to start rebuilding Jerusalem. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, that's 69, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And stop right there. Artaxerxes decreed in 445 BC that the Jews could go home and rebuild. If we start from there and we do the math, we end up right at 31 AD. Whoa. Is that me? Nice rebuke you in Jesus' name. 
And so we have right here, around the concept of a Messiah, the anointed one, the only time that it's mentioned in the Old Testament, the anointed one who Peter is saying that Jesus is, is noted right here in Daniel, and it's on a timeline for when that anointed one would come and be cut off, and doing the math, you line up right at the death of Jesus. It's so beautiful. And so Peter is starting to grasp it. But the idea of the anointed one also goes further back to the understanding of Moses in Deuteronomy 18 said, look, another one's coming. He's going to be like me. And we understand who Moses is, is that Moses brought the covenant of God. He operated as a king, as a priest, as a prophet. And he brought emancipation, freedom for God's people. We also know in Genesis 49 that another one who is a messianic kind of character was King David. King David, we know that the Messiah that would be like him would have a descendant, would be a son of David coming from the line of David. We also know that he would subject all of his enemies and that his dynasty would rule forever. That's Daniel chapter 7. This son of man would rule forever over the nations. And so if you were to look at a first century Jewish understanding of what does it mean to be a Messiah, what does it mean to be a Christ, they would have said things like, victory is going to come through political liberation and conquest of Rome. That's what they're expecting a Messiah to be. They would say that the Messiah is an heir of David that would rule as a king of the Jews forever. And you know what? They might even park it in their minds that the Messiah would perform miracles. But a fuller understanding as we look at Moses and David, and we go all the way back to Adam and Daniel and Isaiah, would be that victory would come through the suffering and dying and resurrection. That's Isaiah 53. That the Messiah would defeat and give liberation from sin through a new covenant. That he would be an heir of David, but he'd also be a son of God. He would operate above the physical realm, doing miracles. He would function as a mediator between God and man, both prophet and priest. He would reign as a king, not of the Jews, but of everyone of the universe forever. The Messiah would be Yahweh in flesh. You see, Peter is correct. Yes, the Messiah is a kingly figure who is coming to bring freedom. Yes, he will set up a rule that will last for eternity. But just like the blind man that is inserted by Mark right here to show us where Mark and the disciples are at, they see, but it's not clear. It's blurry. They have ears, but they're not quite hearing. They have eyes, but they're not quite seeing. That's why we have the, the deaf man and the blind man bracketing this story. It's just seeing dimly. There's so much more. And Jesus is trying to unpack it, and he will three times in Mark chapter 9, or Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10. Jesus is going to say who he is and what Messiah actually means. And every single time, they're going to be confused. So here we go, Mark chapter 8. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, like Jesus can't get any more blunt. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again in three days. I'm saying it plainly. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why? Why is Peter rebuking Jesus? Because he just sees dimly. It's not clear. His, he makes this statement that seems like this great statement of faith. You are the Christ. But he has no concept of what that means. He hasn't wrapped his mind around what does it mean to be a Messiah. 
a suffering servant, one inside of an upside-down kingdom, that authority and reign will be won through suffering and rejection and death. An upside-down kingdom. So Peter rebukes Jesus. <laughs> Don't do that. Jesus, turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. Peter, you're so wrapped up in your limited understanding of what Christ means. You're so wrapped up in just what you can see right here in front of you. Yet you're missing a greater, bigger perspective. You're missing the beauty of the kingdom of God. So Mark is now going to add a second question. Up until Mark, now, Mark keeps asking us, who is Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? And in chapter 9, like keep mentioning that chapter 9 is a hinge chapter, that's going to come fully, like, like unarguably declared who Jesus is at the transfiguration. There's no way around understanding who Jesus is, and yet they're still not going to understand. But Mark is now picking up a second question of how will Jesus fulfill his purpose? How will Jesus receive an eternal kingdom? How will he rule over the nations forever? How will he dethrone sin and Satan? How will he fulfill his purpose? And so this is what Mark's going to spend the rest of his book explaining to us. Let's keep going. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? We have Peter, who's worldview is tied closely to that Maccabean revolt. Mattathias, who came from the mountains and kicked out the Greeks to save the day and, and be the big heroes. And so Peter is thinking, obviously the Christ, the Messiah is going to do it again, except this time it's Rome and we're going to put him underfoot. And we'll have Hanukkah part two. It'll be great. And then Jesus flips the whole script on him. And Jesus says, no. The big top dog is actually going to become the servant of all. And if you're going to follow me, you have to do the same thing. Jesus tells them of his coming death and resurrection three times. Mark 8, 9, and 10. And every single time, the disciples fail to get it. But every single time that he makes this declaration and they fail to get it, he explains what it means to be Messiah by talking about service and servitude. Deny yourselves, lose your life. Chapter 9, the first will be last and the last will be first. Chapter 10, first you have to become servants and slaves. Over and over again, Jesus is flipping the kingdom upside down and what they understand. I think that He's still calling us to the same challenge today. I think that we have a hard time coming to a grips with the idea that when we say, Jesus, I give you my life, that it actually means letting go 
of our life. And that's such a hard concept to wrap our minds around. That, that actually, our life doesn't belong to us anymore. It's not like, hey, Jesus, at salvation, you're like, all right, I choose my religion. Done. No, no, no. It, it is a surrender. It is a repentance saying, everything that I lived for for me, I now surrender and give up. And everything that your kingdom stands for, I now offer myself for. Maybe that means laying down the things that we desire the most. For me, it meant giving up my goals and dreams. I was like destined hardcore. It's why I made good grades. It's why I shot for good colleges and everything. And then one day God was like, actually, yeah. I'm so glad he did. Thank you, Jesus, that he's in control. The things that I've been blessed with from him that I would have missed out on if I was so busy rushing at what I wanted. His kingdom is so worth it. There's a raccoon trap, and it's very simple. You put a piece of bait, maybe something hard, inside of a cage that a raccoon can just barely fit its hand into. And so the hunter will leave this cage out. It's, very, it's so simple. You just put something hard inside of it. So the raccoon will come, and it'll reach inside the cage to grab whatever the bait is, and it'll make a fist around it, but it can't get its hand back out as long as it's holding on to that bait. And the next morning, the hunter will still find the raccoon there. Because the raccoon won't let go of the very thing that's trapping it. Jesus calls us to lay down our lives. And he says that if you'll let go of your life, you'll gain freedom. That's so hard for us to understand. But I'm telling you that there is nothing on this planet, there's nothing in your short little lifespan that is worth hanging on to so hard. Money is not worth it. It's not worth being trapped. Status, power, relationships, that perfect image, it's not worth it. There is nothing on the other side of those bars that are worth holding on to, and yet we cling from day one to our pride and our selfishness and our greed and our lust and everything that holds us back from freedom. And Jesus comes and walks on the earth and says, I've got freedom for you. Will you let go? Will you follow me? Will you deny what's in the cage? Will you walk in freedom? Will you step away from what seems so attractive, but what is so life-giving and full and beautiful? Will you walk in my dust? There's an old saying. It surrounded rabbis. And the saying was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And it was the idea that may you stick so close to them, may you do everything that they do, that the very dust that they kick up from their feet just sticks to you. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Think about Peter when he sees Jesus walking on the water. It wasn't Jesus' initiation that called Peter out. It was Peter going, Jesus, if it's you, call to me. Tell me to come out to you. Give me a chance. May we stick so close to our rabbi we got to let go first. 
I promise you, you will not walk on water in your life. You will not find freedom. You will not find joy. You will not see his kingdom come to pass in you and through you unless we're willing to start letting go and walking close to our rabbi. If you desire to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Because he who tries to save his life will lose it. And you who try to, and those who lose it will find it, will save it. What can you give to save your soul? There's no amount of money. All you can do is let go. I wonder what those things are in each of us that we fight so hard to hang on to. It's just dead weight. It's just on the other side of a cage and it's baiting us and it's calling to us. I wonder what those things are. Heavenly Father, teach us your ways. Give us a renewed hunger for you. Thank you, Lord, for this silly little outline that teaches us so much about who you are. Lord, and I pray that in Elevate tonight, you're going to open eyes and you're going to open ears, that we will perceive and understand how great a God you are. You're the God of more than enough. You will provide for your people. You will give grace, Lord, to the sinners. You are the God who reigns on high. And Lord, you will reign on high. And every mouth will confess, every knee will bow and call you Lord of everyone who has ever lived. Lord, I pray that Elevate is complete, that everyone will bow a knee looking up to a father instead of fearing a God. Teach us to let go. Give us the discipline. In Jesus' name, amen.